Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of Voices of E-Learning with J.W. Marshall from MarketScale. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we have a great guest lined up, Kate Everly Walker, who is the CEO of Presence Learning. Kate, how are you today? Hi, JW. Thanks for having me. I'm good. Absolutely. And I know you joined our uh, friend, uh, Kevin Hogan, on an episode a few months ago of Remote Possibilities. And so we are very excited to have you now on Voices of E-Learning. And we've got some great questions lined up for you. But before we start, if you could just give our audience a little background on yourself. Sure. So as you said, I'm currently the CEO of Presence Learning. We're the leading provider of online special education therapy and assessments for K through 12 schools. Uh, I've been at Presence Learning for about two years, but have worked in education technology for over 20 years now. I spent several years as CEO of the Princeton Review and our company, Tutor.com. And prior to that, I was at Kaplan for almost 10 years. So I've been working in education and believing in education technology models for a long time. That is amazing. Um, Great experience. And tell us a little bit more about Presence Learning. How did it come about and what do you guys do there? Sure. So Presence Learning was founded all the way back in 2009. So we're about to turn 12. And at the time, teletherapy was really not contemplated for special education services inside schools, but there were these significant gaps in services. You know, you have millions of students across the country who have IEPs, who have therapy requirements for for their special education services. And in many schools, there were these gaps where, where there just weren't enough therapists that lived in the area or who were able to work full-time on-site at schools. And so when Presence Learning was formed, it was really with the idea that you could use online therapy to bridge those gaps and to connect therapists wherever they were with the students in these schools and districts that had a need and weren't able to do the hiring. So at the very beginning, we focused on speech language therapy. And over time, we've added occupational therapy, we've added uh, psychoeducational services, so assessments and evaluations and mental health therapy. It's really expanded, you know, wherever, wherever we hear from school districts that they have a need to serve students and don't have enough people on the ground, we've come in and figured out how to do the work online. And it's, it's grown significantly over the years. And of course, this year in 2020, with the expanded need everywhere for online service, it's it's really been a big opportunity for us to expand what we do at schools even more. I can only imagine, and you beat me to my first question, uh, what does uh, 2020 look like as far as um, the increase in schools, the acceleration of this digital transformation, but maybe a, a better question, because that's kind of an obvious one, would be what has been the experience of these schools that would not have done telehealth in 2019, uh, and now they're experiencing it for the first time? It's been it's been very varied across across schools how their experience has gone. I mean, the you know the one thing that we've seen for sure is that 
the number of schools that are using teletherapy has grown significantly. We've more than doubled the number of districts that we're working with at Presence Learning since last March. So the, you know, the need is, is definitely there and is expanding. And, you know, what we see is that there are, there are some districts that really weren't contemplating using teletherapy or doing, doing any of these services online before. And for them, I think it was just, you know, it was really overwhelming, if not paralyzing in those first months, thinking back to March, April, you know, schools are closed. We think, you know, at the beginning, it's, it might just be a few weeks and then we can, so we can just sort of pause all of these services and then go back and then, you know, sort of reckoning with the reality that it was going to take a whole lot longer than that. And that, you know, even schools that, that had not tried online before were going to need to figure it out. So we, we spent, uh, particularly those those first few months really doing a lot of training and professional development with schools, which was an entirely new service line for us that we added, you know, on the fly, really going back to March, April, recognizing that there was this different need forming out there where in addition to the schools we'd always worked with that were using our therapists to, to help fill their gaps in service, there were now all of these schools that had therapists, they but they had only been meeting with their students in person in school, and now they needed to very quickly adapt and learn how to move their entire practice from offline to online. So we started doing training and really trying to, you know, break it down into manageable steps for for all of these teams across schools who were just you know overwhelmed and and needed to, as I said, just really quickly figure out how to change the way that they did their work. I'm sure that was a big effort to train all of those educators. Was that mostly done via webinars or on-demand videos or one-on-one sessions or all of the above? It's all of the above. It started out with a lot of live online classes. Um, So, you know, we had our team of clinical directors and experts who had been doing teletherapy in many cases for, you know, a decade, and they had the knowledge. So the, you know, the quickest solution at the beginning was we, we started doing free webinars, and then we started doing more in-depth uh, live online courses. But over the course of the summer, we built out a really great asynchronous on-demand video training program, you know, with multiple hours of, of content where we could really take all of their knowledge and put it into something that was that was more accessible and you know paced paced out for the school teams to use. So by the end of August, we had launched that as well. That's amazing, and I would imagine a lot of your um, your subject matter experts were used to delivering the messages online. So that was probably a fairly easy next step to extend into the PD world. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, you know we. If nothing else, we can certainly say we're, you know, all of us at Presence Learning are very comfortable do, you know, doing things online and um, including, you know, all of our clinical experts had been teletherapists themselves. And, you know, they, they were sort of the pioneers that figured out how to do teletherapy, how to do teleassessment, how to take some of these cognitive and behavioral assessments that had only been done in person and uh, figure out how to how to replicate them online. So they were really, it, it was really fun to watch them, you know, in action, figure out how to how to really take all of that 
knowledge and, and comfort that they had kind of built up over the years and how to engage with students online and to translate that into into teaching their peers, their peer therapists, how to how to do what they've been doing. I love that. I'm sure a lot of them kind of felt like they'd been training their whole career for this moment to be able to just take everything that they knew and this new uh, challenge. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned the teleassessment as well. Maybe talk a little bit more about that and also impart some wisdom into maybe how schools can effectively integrate teletherapy and teleassessment into daily delivery models to either serve their students at home or be prepared to immediately pivot to in-home delivery if we kind of run into a, a shelter in place again. Yeah, I mean, one one thing that is really nice about teletherapy and teleassessment is that, you know, you can you can do it in multiple different ways depending on who can actually be in the building and how schedules align. So even even pre-COVID, there were just challenges in, you know, fitting everything into the school day. You know, we, we try to avoid pulling children out of their other classes for therapy whenever possible, right? Like there's, you know, you've got, you've got these limitations of there's only so much time in the day and there's only so many therapists to do the work. So there's always been this nice flexibility of you can schedule sessions more efficiently. You can make them happen, you know, even if the child needs to stay at home or now these days, sometimes it's the therapist needs to stay at home or you just can't have them in the same room. So, um, for, you know, for a lot of districts coming into this school year, not really knowing, you know, which of those permutations it was going to be which week. Um, you know, there's so many hybrid schedules now where a child is in some days, faculty is in some days. And so getting getting everyone set up to be able to do all of this through the screens just, just gives the added flexibility so you know that, you know, if if the students can be in the building some days, but not all days, you could maximize that time for the academic classroom work and you can still get the therapy done maybe outside of the school day. You know, there's there's so many different ways that we've seen schools get creative to make the most of really less time that they have with the, you know, with the faculty and the children together in the room. And therapy in particular has turned out to be something that, you know, can really be just as engaging through the screen. And, you know, you do it, you do it that way and you've got access to all of these games and videos and, you know, other tools to really make for a great session where, you know, a lot of schools are finding they don't they don't miss being being in person in the classroom. They're still able to engage. Um, the teleassessment has been been a slower evolution, I would say, in the market. We we first introduced teleassessment only about five years ago. So so teletherapy we started now nearly twelve years ago. Assessment we brought in five years ago, and it really required partnering directly with all of the test makers to you know take these tests that had been normed specifically for in-person administration and to, you know, very, very methodically go test item by test item and replicate the experience in the online platform and do, you know, research data sets. We, we've partnered with uh, Jordan Wright out of NYU to analyze, you know, hundreds of, of children given the administration online 
and offline compare the data and you know validate that that there's an equivalency and that you know you can in fact do the do the online administration and still feel comfortable that the outcome is valid so it's it's it requires you know a lot more sort of Part, partnership and and diligence to make sure that you're doing that assessment the right way. And so for that reason, I think it's been slower to adopt. It's really adoption by necessity, I'd say, is how how that piece of tele teleassessment has grown. And um, you know, like with most things, there was a growing need for it even before COVID just because there are so many shortages of the school psychologists and other licensed examiners that can do these assessments. And um, so there was already this, this growing interest in teleassessment. And then once, um, once the majority of schools shut down for some period of time and these backlogs built up, it, it just became, you know, more and more necessary for, for the districts to really embrace it. Um, there's, you know, there's there's such there's still right now such a buildup and backlog of assessments to be to be done. So you have these children who you know really really no one was able to get assessments going in a significant way back in the spring when everything was in flux. Uh, some districts started to try to catch up and work through those backlogs over the summer, but even then, you know, I mean, remember everyone was overwhelmed with logistics and planning of how to reopen and how to space desks and classrooms and order plexiglass like that you know, there were so many other things happening in the summer that still many districts really weren't able to get the assessment piece in place until the fall and so now we're seeing with a lot of districts there's there's a buildup where they're you know they're trying to work through and get back caught up because every every evaluation that's that's waiting you know that child's waiting to to you know, have it be determined what their needs are. Do they need therapy? And so it you know becomes more and more urgent to to work through. And I think because of that recognition that you know this is important for the development of, of these kids to get them evaluated and get an understanding of what they need, uh, it's it's really now accelerated the the embracing of teleassessment. And I'm sure for telehealth and teleassessment teletherapy. There's also an advantage of scheduling faster and scheduling specific times around schedules instead of, and I'm thinking of maybe rural districts that are harder to get resources or just time in the day, like you'd said earlier. Um, is that one of the main, not one of the main advantages, but one of the uh, kind of bonus advantages of teletherapy and teleassessment? Definitely. I mean, there's there's much more, you know, there, there's more flexibility in when you can schedule and how you can schedule. So I think that's that's a big part of it. And then there's also, a, you know, another separate but related topic is that when you when you look to schedule teletherapy and assessments and you have the children at home, you're you're going to be involving the parent or another at-home caregiver as well in getting everything set up and running. And while that, you know, that that can be another coordination challenge or another, you know, point point of coordination, it also has been really, I think, eye-opening and enlightening for a lot of parents to get to be that much closer and to really have a view on what's happening and and what supports their children are getting so we like we hear from parents in a totally different way now than than we did a year ago the engagement is much higher 
That's amazing. And, and hopefully that's another silver lining that carries past the pandemic is that parent involvement. I know on this show and others, we've talked a lot about the involvement as a parent, as a teacher, as a facilitator, uh, as getting more um, uh, appreciation for their teachers um, and for their you know health providers. And now hopefully that stronger connection, that stronger uh, relationship between student, parent, and uh, school is going to continue on. And this is another great example. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. And, you know, I think also it, we've all, we've known in education for a long time in a lot of different areas that parent support and parent communication and parent involvement is so key to the success of children. So I think that this this era and, and, you know, the way that it has brought parents in and, you know, kind of expanded their appreciation for everything that happens during the school day, I think it really is going to have a lasting effect, just, just you know, forging these tighter communication channels between the school and the parent. Absolutely. And how has teletherapy helped schools and districts meet the requirements of students with special needs and address behavioral, mental health challenges, especially this year, but even moving into post-pandemic? So a lot of districts with the staff that they have on site just don't have enough people to cover all of the therapy requirements. So what, you know, for every student with special needs who has an IEP, there's some, typically some number of therapy sessions, therapy minutes that the school needs to be delivering every week. And they they struggle, you know, it's, it's a significant need in a lot of districts. And, you know, they might have their on-staff SLPs, you know, struggling with caseloads that can be, you know, 75, 85, 90, that can, you know, really be above where you'd want it to be. And, um, and so, you know, schools do do what they can, but they can only cover so much. And so, with teletherapy, it's often used as, uh, you know, an extension of the on the ground team to make sure that they're able to cover all of the student caseloads, uh, which, you know, is, is important for them to do not only for the children, but for their compliance. So it's all federally mandated to be providing these special education services to every child that that has a requirement. And so, you know, schools schools are trying really hard and, you know, really, really need to get get more creative in looking at resources beyond their core on the ground team. And so that's that's how we start working with a lot of the districts that we do is it's from from that place of, you know, they really need help, whether it's uh, covering a portion of the therapy caseload or whether it's helping them work through, you know, the number of evaluations that they need to complete by a deadline. There's, there's, you know, I guess in, in short, I'd just say there's a lot of work to be done and it's often too much for any, any school-based team to complete on their own. So, um, you know, thinking of it as a way to, to flex and expand their, their ability to, to cover the work, I think is the, is the biggest advantage with teletherapy. Well, and at market scale, scale is part of our name. It sounds like you're really helping schools meet the scale that they need, which already was probably pressed. And now with the pandemic, just put them over the edge. So it's nice to hear your your goal is not to replace the on-site teams, right? It's really to enhance what they're doing, to give them more bandwidth and flexibility. And especially in these times, really just meet every student um, where they need it. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we always are saying to our school partners, you know, you, you tell us what, what work you want us to help with. And, and it can be really different. You know, some, some teams are more comfortable uh, getting help on the evaluations, some with the therapy, and, the, and then the other big area, which you mentioned in mental health services, you know, that's, that's an area where mental health services are not always required in the same way. You know, they, there are mental health needs that span, you know, well beyond the special education population to really, really general education, you know, to you know, cover the needs of mental health and wellness for every student. And in terms of, you know, getting, ha having the room in, in the day and the schedule to get creative and develop programs that can really work and can really help kids, you know, that's, that's another area that we often hear from our school partners. They'd love to do more, but they just don't have the time or, you know, the, the capacity to develop some of, some of those ideas out. So that's, that's been another area of growth for us has been, you know, really kind of listening to what are, what are the areas that they're trying to address and trying to create some really practical, usable programs that a school can can bring in to, you know, to help to help tackle those broader issues of, of mental health and wellness. We, for example, we we launched a program called Finding Your Power in Uncertain Times this fall. We partnered with Dr. Isaiah Pickens, who is an expert in trauma-informed therapy, and we developed a program that was specifically for middle schoolers and high schoolers that would, you know, attempt to tackle some of the issues that they're facing with the unique stresses of, you know, COVID, of racial unrest, of economic uncertainty. You know, a lot of families have had a, you know, a parent has lost a job or there's been some other shift in their home life. There's, you know, changes, unpredictability of, of schedules, social isolation. There's so much going on right now. Um, and, you know, it, it needed some programming and, and, you know, we've tried tried when we can to, you know, identify those areas of need where we can build out a program that schools can then take and use and, you know, apply across across groups of, of kids in their district. I love that. Schools and districts don't have to feel like they're reinventing the wheel or starting from scratch uh, when so much work has been done, so much research has been done um, over the years uh, leading up to this. Um, I also really like that you're meeting the students where they're at, whether that's specifically identified mental health challenges that they need uh, assistance with, which I think pre-pandemic, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, was around 20% of most student populations to now during the pandemic being 60, 80%, depending on the research you look at, which really almost means every student or every teacher, every administrator. Um, and I feel like in 2020, one silver lining is schools and districts really taking time to realize this mental health is important for everyone, for every student, for every uh, member of the, the school or the district. Um, is that, I'm assuming, something you've seen? And, and how have you seen that kind of play out as far as just everyone taking more uh, account of what's going on and being more present uh, with mental health? Yeah, there's there's definitely been a shift to to schools, you know, feeling more responsible for the the 
the mental health of children, you know, beyond beyond special education. You know, we've we we got our start in special education, and even for our our psychoeducational services, our behavioral mental health services, the, those for us started still in the realm of special education. But um, this year, there's there's been a much more significant expansion that that we've seen, where the schools that we started out working with for their students with special needs are now coming to us for. Uh, broader programming that they can that they can use with children who who don't necessarily have a special education need but do have a need for some kind of behavioral intervention, and I think that you know it's it's clearly a sign that that you know communities are holding schools responsible, parents are holding schools responsible, and I think schools them schools are holding themselves responsible for really really focusing on student mental health and recognizing that that you know if you don't it it shows up in in so many other ways throughout the school day that you know it's really it's really necessary. I think the other thing that has sort of pushed this along is the is the funding. Um, you know, there there is a reality in schools that no matter how how many good ideas there are and how much schools you know might want to add more services and do the right thing for every student, there's there's always limitations of budgets and funding sources. And we've definitely seen not, you know, not just at the federal level, but particularly at the state level, a lot of, uh, you know, new initiatives around mental health funding start to start to come out. You know, Florida in particular has been a leader on that with K-12 schools really dedicating funds uh, for for this purpose, for supporting all students with with mental health specifically. And, and I've seen the same thing, and I wish it didn't take a pandemic to bring that, you know, to the forefront. But, but again, hopefully another silver lining that will continue beyond the pandemic. Um, on a personal note, um, my youngest daughter um, had some speech therapy issues uh, early on in her uh, life, and and as a parent, I was a little um, apprehensive around therapy and you know what that would look like and what that would mean for our daughter and. She had an amazing experience. It really um, brought her out from being not being very vocal to, uh, you know, really within about a year's time, seeing some very noticeable differences in her speech and her confidence. Um, I'm sure you hear stories all the time from your schools, your districts, parents. Um, what has been kind of the, what advice would you have for parents that maybe are not wanting their students to be diagnosed with needing speech therapy or uh, some of these other therapies um, to kind of help let them know that it's okay and it, it is a good thing. Yeah, it is. It's first of all, it's. I mean, I agree with what you said as a parent. You know, my my younger daughter has had some speech challenges, and until I came to presence learning, I wasn't really aware of or you know well informed on you know how how her needs could be addressed and how effective speech therapy could be and i was really lucky that i you know happened to to you know move through my career to to presence learning where i was suddenly surrounded by all of these amazing speech pathologists and i could you know sort of recognize and start asking questions and asking for advice and what I learned, you know, much later than I wish I had. My daughter was third grade when when I started her on speech therapy, and what I learned was that she had 
something that was very addressable with therapy. It was really amazing to me how quickly her speech improved. And, and as you said, her, her confidence and ability to speak with confidence. And I mean, it's, it was just life changing. I mean, I, you know, I'd listen, listen to her in these sessions and, and after them and, you know, was just brought to tears with, you know, pride at how, how different she was uh, within a matter of, of you know, weeks of, of starting the therapy sessions. And so what I learned from it was, you know, I should have pushed more, asked more, believed in my own intuition and instinct from, you know, her earlier days. I, I had wondered since she was really in preschool and I'd asked teachers and, you know, gotten sort of some minimization saying, you know, she'll, she'll grow out of it. It's not really holding her back. I wouldn't worry. And, you know, to, to realize years later, no, you know, I, my instinct was right. It, it was something that needed to be addressed and it was in fact very addressable. My advice to parents now is just, you know, follow your own instinct. You, you, you know, we're all very obsessive about our children. We're watching everything they do and say, and, you know, we're quite likely to be the first to recognize when, you know, something looks like it, it might need some help or, or some change and just ask, ask the questions, push for the answers. And, you know, it, it's your, it's your right as, you know, particularly as, as part of the public education system, if you're in it to have your child evaluated and the, you know, typically the younger you do it, the better. So it's really, you know, my own experience and just watching so many other families experience it through presence learning has me really, really advocating to, you know, two parents and four parents now to, um, you know, to really, you know, ask for that service and, and ask for those evaluations and make sure that you know what, what your child would benefit from. And I would echo that too. In my own experience, err on the side of getting an evaluation because you want that knowledge to know. Uh, and I know it's so hard too because every child learns at a different pace, and it's hard to compare. But yes, I like your answer too of giving your using your gut feeling that if you feel like there's something more that can be done, give your student that opportunity. And uh, if they get tested and that's you know not it, then at least you can sleep a little better. So. Um, I had an amazing experience uh, with it, and even the things that I learned as a parent that I could do to help, um, you know, help help my daughter um, was really um, eye-opening. Uh, the little things you can do that make a big impact, especially in the early development years. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I love to see sites and resources out there that are focused on on parent education and information. I think that this is an area where, uh, you know, I, I hope to I hope to be able to offer more of that through presence learning in the future. I mean, as we've talked about, we've always we've always worked worked with schools and through the schools, but especially in in this year, having so much more parent engagement and communication with them, I think that there's you know there's a lot of good to come from from educating parents and and just giving you know making sure they have all this information. Absolutely. All right. I want to shift gears one last time. Um, Talk a little bit about how teletherapy is changing the workforce of clinicians who are finding new ways to balance their work and home priorities through remote work. Yeah, I mean, we when we started presence learning, it was really with the workforce in mind and recognizing that you know here you had schools were 
struggling to fulfill the services because they couldn't hire enough clinicians on the ground. Yet on the other side of it, we saw a lot of clinicians, you know, leaving school-based work because it's it's very demanding. It can be, you know, beyond full-time work and, you know, it requires a commute often driving from site to site, it, you know, it, it can be a lot. And this, th these professions are very female dominated. Um, SLPs are, I believe, 97% female at this point, and a lot of them are young moms. And so, you know, there was a, there was a common workforce trend that, that we were seeing that you had these new working moms who loved their work. And I mean, you know, they were highly skilled and and trained to do exactly this this therapy work with with students in school-based situations but they, as their lives were changing and their household obligations they they just didn't feel they could continue to commute to a full-time job every day so when when presence learning was started it was really a new offering a new way for them to do their work and still get to do, you know, specifically this this work with school-based kids that that they wanted to do and were trained to do. And, and I think it's really helped contribute to keeping more of these clinicians in the workforce focused on the school-based work. Uh, you know, before teletherapy was really out there as an option, it was, you know, common paths were to switch to private practice maybe or to go work in a in a clinic um you know maybe more focused on adults than children so you know there really were a lot of the paths led you out of out of doing this this school-based work and so teletherapy can keep more clinicians in the profession really focused on serving these kids in schools and i think it's been you know a whole a whole new take on a career path for all of these clinicians, especially these working moms. And so it's, it's you know, we have a whole community now. We've got nearly 1,500 teletherapists work for Presence Learning, and they all, you know, they set their hours. Some of them want to work 10 hours a week or 20 hours a week. You know, you can kind of decide and have that control over how much you're going to do each week and how much you can commit to. And it allows people to keep doing the work they love, but, you know, live their lives outside of work as well and balance it how they want to. So I think it's it's it already was starting to to change the way this work was done and watching so many more clinicians come into teletherapy this year has been I think really, you know, really eye-opening for them in terms of thinking about this different way to work and I think it'll be interesting. I think this is not just true now for therapy. I mean, I think work work all over the place. Um, you know, everyone is experiencing the pros and cons of working online and not commuting and, you know, remote work is, is going to be, I think, you know, forever changed by, by the experience this year. And I think that's as true for, for teletherapy as it is for all of, all of these other areas that, that we're all working in. Well, and it seems like in this context, you would also I would think have an element of keeping motivated and energized uh, versus being overworked in a school environment, never enough time in the day. Um, and, and it seems like presence is helping address both that overworked uh, school team getting more support, but then also, um, yeah, stay at home mom is a great example of someone that could give 10 or 20 hours and give it 
with all they have because they're not overstressed by feeling like they're missing something at home or uh, in other areas of their life. So that's really exciting um, for this industry and for others. I can say as a working mom myself, when you when you're choosing to work and, you know, able to define how you do, I mean, it's it's not even just, you know, being able to have that better balance. I think you really love your work. You look forward to your work. You know, it, it becomes this, you know, th- this important outlet for you and and part part of your life that, you know, I think that's that's something that we see a lot with with therapists as well. Like maybe it is 10 hours, 15 hours, but that's that's going to become time that, you know, they're not stressing or, or scrambling to try to fit in. They're going to really look forward to it. And the end result is a better experience for those students and for those schools. So um, this has just been great. All right. I said there was going to be one last thing. Um, you also have a book coming out. And so we are almost out of time, but give us just a few minutes on what the book is. And we're going to have to have you back on uh, for a future episode to talk about the book exclusively. Yeah. Thank you for asking. So yeah, my book is coming out March 9th, 2021, which is International Women's Day. And the book is called The Good Boss, Nine Ways Every Manager Can Support Women at Work. And it is a very practical approach for every manager, whether you're a manager of one woman or a hundred women or you're you know CEO of a large company. It's really a call for every manager to, you know, pay attention to how women experience the working environment and to do your part to make the working environment more more hospitable and more more encouraging to the development of women. So, you know, I wrote it from you know, partly my own perspective, sharing stories of my experience working working my way up from my early days on Wall Street to ultimately becoming a CEO myself and, you know, what I kind of saw and learned along the way. And then I also share a lot of really, really amazing stories from other women, uh, from, you know, how they've found success and, and how they've experienced the workplace. And, and then I end each of the chapters with a uh, an example from a CEO of how they've, you know, built something into their their company structurally or into their processes that really ensures that that their company supports women. I love it, and that's a very important message for now and always. Um, if you are listening to this, you have access to the blog post around it. There is a link, I believe, you can pre-order. Is that correct? Yeah, you can pre-order it on any any major bookseller. There you go. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great um, episode for our audience. I can't wait for them to listen to it. Um, And thank you so much to my audience for uh, joining us today and listening every week to Voices of E-Learning podcast. We really appreciate um, your comments and we appreciate you sharing the uh, episodes like this out with those that need to hear it. Uh, Stay tuned for next week. Uh, We have new episodes coming up. And uh, we're going to be finishing season one at the end of this year. And we'd love your feedback on what topics you want to see covered in uh, January to kick off season two in 2021. Kate, thanks again. Thank you so much. And to my audience, never forget to always keep learning. Mm